This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Salvation, where God, as it were, rolled up his own sleeves and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm rescued the enslaved people of Israel from the land of Egypt. There were many, many signs and wonders. And God led them out through the Red Sea. He drowned Pharaoh and his chariots in those waters. And then in the Exodus, God forged a new people, a new nation, God's covenant people, on Mount Sinai, a people set apart for God, destined for the promised land. And this is the most significant event of the Old Testament. Everything either seems to look forward to it or to look back to it. And every single year, the people of Israel celebrated the Passover as the highest and greatest of their feasts. The Passover, the original Number one Passover happened actually just before the Exodus. There had been 12 plagues. And one by one, it was as though God was undoing the creation. The sun turned black. The Egyptian sun god had been defeated. And plague after plague happens as the land of Egypt descends into chaos. But still, Pharaoh will not relent. He will not let God's people go. And finally, there is a tenth and final plague where God threatens to slaughter the firstborn of every family in the land. And the people of Egypt are told every family must slaughter a lamb, cut its throat, and smear the blood around your doorframe so that when the avenging angel, the angel of death, flies through the land, he will see the blood on your doorframe and pass over you. That's where the word Passover comes from, the angel passing over without wreaking vengeance. It really tells us, doesn't it, that there was really no distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians except for one thing. The Israelites were covered by the blood of the lamb and the Egyptians were not. The blood alone protected them from the avenging angel. And the whole lesson of Passover and the whole lesson of the Exodus was this. Our God is mighty to save. And no matter what, how dangerous of a situation, how desperate of a situation we find ourselves in, we can always repent and cry out to the Lord and he will rescue us. And for 1,500 years, the Israelites had celebrated the Passover 1,500 times. And every night, the youngest boy in the family would ask this question of the father, the head of the household, why is this night different from all other nights? But now we have a Passover which is different from all other Passovers. This, in fact, is going to be the last, the very last of the Passovers. Because here in Mark chapter 14, at the Last Supper, Jesus is offering God's feast of redemption 
to all his disciples. And he is promising an act of ransom, of rescue, of redemption far greater than anything the Israelites had ever experienced. So I have three simple points for you today. The first one is this. Jesus is the host of God's feast. Jesus is the host of God's feast. And notice this supper is no accident. Jesus seems to have gone ahead of his disciples in some way to arrange and make sure that this Passover is going to happen. As the Passover time draws near, which was on the first day of the week-long festival of unleavened bread, the disciples come to Jesus and ask, so Jesus, do you have plans? Where are we going to celebrate this Passover? They were in Bethany outside of Jerusalem, and it was basically illegal and wrong to celebrate the Passover outside of Jerusalem. The rule was it had to be celebrated within the city limits. So they had to go into the city and find a house somewhere for the Passover to be celebrated. And Jerusalem at this time of year would have been crowded with pilgrims from all over Israel and all over the Roman Empire coming home to celebrate this annual feast. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that in the Passover in AD 66, 36 years after this one, 33 or 36 years after this one, there were 255,600 lambs slaughtered in Jerusalem and allowing 10 people per lamb, that's two and a half million pilgrims in Jerusalem. And even if he was exaggerating, which is quite likely, you can imagine Jerusalem was jammed full of pilgrims, and they need to find a place to eat the Passover. So Jesus sends two of his disciples into the city. And we know from Luke's gospel, this was Peter and John, not two of the lowest, two of the most important of his disciples are sent into the city. And this story should sound a little familiar to you because we encountered something similar before Jesus enters Jerusalem, when two of his disciples are sent to find a colt. Remember that? I think Mark chapter... 11, if I recall correctly, and Jesus somehow seems to have made arrangements beforehand. And the same thing is true here with the Last Supper. Jesus is predicting and he is controlling every single event leading up to his death. Jesus is not somehow carried away by events that have overtaken him. He is very much in charge of everything that happens, down to a man with a jar of water on his head somehow meeting these two disciples. And that would have been an unusual sight because it was not men who had jars of water on their heads in those days. It was women. So to see a man with a jar of water on his head would have been an unusual sight. And somehow this guy comes up to Peter and John, he meets them and they follow him and they go to someone's house to tell him the master wants to eat the Passover in this house. Now, there's a very interesting ancient Christian tradition that this house actually belonged to Mark's parents. In Acts chapter 12, in fact, you can read that. John Mark's mother hosted prayer meetings at her house in Jerusalem. And how interesting would it be if it was the very author of this gospel as a young man who was having Jesus and his disciples in his house. However it happens, the disciples make arrangements with this man because Jesus wants to eat the Passover with his disciples. Now, the Passover was a family meal. And if you didn't have enough people in your house to consume a lamb, you would invite the neighbor's family over. But it was a family meal. So by Jesus doing it with his disciples, he is saying, 
This is my new family. These are the people that I want to have fellowship with. And this house has already been furnished, and it wouldn't have been a long, you know, narrow table with chairs like we see in Renaissance paintings. It would have been low couches and rugs, a low table where uh, Jesus and his disciples would literally recline. They'd be leaning on their left elbow and with their heads toward the table, the feet away, and eating together like that. So this room is set up, but the food is not. And Peter and John have to go out to the temple, to that long lineup where no doubt every priest is called into service and hundreds of thousands of lambs are being slaughtered. They've got to get their lamb slaughtered. They've got to get a hold of some unleavened bread. They have to find a bowl of salt water, which symbolizes the people passing through the Red Sea, bitter herbs that represent the bitterness of their captivity in Egypt, and they have to get enough wine for four cups of wine for 12 people. So they've got quite the meal to organize. And every element in that meal has ritual and symbolic significance. They're not just randomly grabbing stuff on the shelf. This is a meal that is strictly defined. And for 1,500 years, this meal has been celebrated in exactly the same way, with no variation. And so Jesus is the one, in effect, hosting this meal. And the disciples go to the place that Jesus himself has prepared for them. But Jesus, the host of God's feast, knowingly invites a traitor to the meal. One of you will betray me, he tells the shocked disciples as they are reclining at the table. One of you is going to betray me. And in the ancient world, as in much of the world today, eating a meal with someone is a sacred thing you do with them. When you eat a meal with someone, you are expressing We are family, we are friends, and there is a sacred bond between us, and it is a mark of deepest shame to violate that bond. When I eat a meal with you, when we break bread together, that means I accept you. We belong together. We are united. And it would have been an unthinkable violation of the ancient code of hospitality to betray someone who has eaten with you. And when Jesus says this, the disciples are shocked. They're horrified and they are deeply saddened, Mark tells us. And they begin asking Jesus, surely, surely, Jesus, you don't mean me. And the way the question is constructed, it's expecting a negative answer. And sadly, the disciples who are often so selfish and confused seem more concerned with defending themselves from this potential accusation than concern about what betrayal and treachery will mean for Jesus. Surely, surely, Jesus, it's not me. But it is one of them. Notice that no one asks, Jesus, it's, it's Judas, isn't it? No one suspects Judas. One of the twelve, one of Jesus' inner circle, A man who has seen Jesus do incredible things. He has seen miracle after miracle. He has seen healings. He's seen the deaf given their hearing and the blind given their sight. He has seen demons cast out of oppressed people. He has watched the dead been raised to life. 
He has seen the 4,000 and the 5,000 miraculously fed from heaven. He has sat under all of Jesus' teachings, even the ones reserved for the 12. Judas has been there all along, and Judas is a traitor. And Judas is a warning of small sins left unchecked, leading us to betray Christ. Judas' sin, the other gospel writers tell us, began with greed. He loved money, and he liked getting a little bit more money every time. And I think most of us share in that sin to some degree, don't we? Greed is not a sin most of us feel tremendous conviction over. But for Judas, it was that little fissure in his heart that grew and grew and grew until he decided, I've done this Jesus thing enough, it's time for me to cash out. While Michelle and I were in Cyprus, we celebrated our 12th anniversary yesterday. An amazing feat of endurance for my wife. (laughs) But while we were there, while we were there, we heard from some friends about two people who were close to us, two couples who were close to us who have gotten divorced. The longer we go, the more we hear about these tragic situations from people we would have expected far more, who seemed far above ourselves. One of these was a couple who was in our small group, the best small group we ever had. It was so tight and so close. And I remember laying our hands on this friend and praying for her to receive the Holy Spirit and her beginning to speak in tongues. And we heard that she had gotten a job in the finance sector and began to be consumed with making more and more money. She committed adultery with her boss and basically abandoned her husband and her two children. And greed entered into her heart and has led her away from God and from this sacred covenant. Now, we don't know what the end of her story is, but we know the end of Judas's story, and it would have been better for this man not to have been born. And so the Last Supper has this shadow cast over it of one of the disciples betraying Jesus. And it should cause all of us, as we come to this holy meal to examine our own hearts so that we do not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. What hidden treachery is in my own heart that left unchecked could lead me away from the living God? That is the question we all should be asking ourselves, opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. And amazingly, Jesus says, the Son of Man must go as it is written about him. There is a script that God the Father has for me, and this script is written in the Word of God. All these ancient prophecies must be fulfilled. But woe to this man by whom it comes. Somehow, in a way we don't understand, we have both the incredible sovereignty of God ruling over all events and the terrible responsibility of Judas for betraying Jesus. Somehow, In God's plan, this must happen. But Judas is held fully responsible for what he freely chose to do. And the Bible nowhere attempts to reconcile or explain those two facts. And theologians exert a tremendous amount of energy trying to fit those things together. Maybe it's humanly insolvable. God alone knows how those two things work together. But they do fit together. And even while we trust that God is governing all events in history 
down to the very smallest detail, we ourselves are held responsible for our own sinful choices. And amazingly, the most sinful choice of all, Judas betraying Christ, God somehow folds it into his great plan of redemption and uses it for the salvation of the world. See, the cross is not some terrible setback for Jesus, some jarring shock to what he was planning to do. This has been God's plan all along. And you can imagine the disciples, not after the crucifixion, maybe long after the resurrection, in the upper room waiting for Pentecost, discussing among themselves everything that led up to Jesus' resurrection and realizing Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. This was no accident. We were shocked and taken aback, but he was in control of everything leading up to this. Christ is the host of the feasts, and the host is in control of every detail. Christ is the host of God's feast, and Christ is the host of this feast that we are partaking of today. This is not our offering to God. This is not something that we are giving to God. This is something that God is giving to us. And we come here today with open hands and open mouths simply to receive from God. That is not a posture many of us find easy. It's the simplest thing God could ask of us, but we find it so difficult just to be the guest at God's table. Jesus is the host. And he is responsible to feed his guests. While I was in Vancouver last year, some friends invited me over. Hey, come over, they said. Come over at like about 6.30. So I went to their house, fully expecting dinner because it was dinner time. And I guess they had already eaten dinner at 5.30 or something. And all I got was a cup of tea and a cookie. And when I got out of there at 10.30 or 11, I rushed out and had a huge hamburger because I was ravenous. But of course, as the guest while I was there... I couldn't, you know, go to the cupboard and start helping myself. But that is never the case with God's hospitality. He never forgets to feed us, and his fridge is always full. And the table is always laden with food for his children. And whenever we come to God, he plays the perfect host. He's not demanding that we bring along our own bottle of wine or flowers or cake. He provides everything. And as the host, Jesus provides everything in the gospel for us. Every single aspect is God's gift. Christ is the host. And once we have eaten with Jesus, he will never betray us. He will never violate divine hospitality. He's not going to eat, break bread and drink wine with us and then murder us in the night. That is not how Jesus operates as the host. We are welcome to his table and we are invited into his family because God's hospitality ensures our safety. Jesus is the host of God's feast, but Jesus is also the heart of God's feast. My second point. Here are these first century Jews and they are participating in the exodus by eating this feast. 1,500 years later, somehow by eating this feast, they are reliving and recapitulating what God had done for Israel 1,500 years earlier, this central act of God's deliverance. And here's Jesus 
sitting down at the Passover, doing the most shocking, audacious, and blasphemous thing imaginable. He is reinterpreting this entire meal around himself. Jesus is saying, yes, I know Yahweh did this incredible act of deliverance at the Red Sea. But now, in me, something even greater is happening. That is a very shocking thing to do. Just as shocking as if we were celebrating communion in a bit, and I started saying, this meal is actually about me, Bart Bile. This is what Jesus is doing at the Passover. There is a script that has been followed for 1,500 years, and Jesus puts that script aside and starts reinterpreting all these elements of the Passover around himself. In me, Jesus is saying, God is doing something far greater than what he did at the Red Sea. This is real salvation. Jesus begins by taking the bread, and he gives thanks over the bread. And we actually know what he would have said based on Jewish tradition. Here's the prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then Jesus breaks that bread. He begins to tear it in pieces, and he begins to give it to his disciples. We know from the other Gospels that Judas has already slipped out into the night. Satan has entered into him. He's off to do his treachery. Now it's just the eleven. And Jesus gives the bread to these eleven disciples, and he says, Take it. This is my body. Take it. This is my body. Now, Jesus clearly cannot mean this literally because his very physical body is holding this bread. This is symbolic. He's speaking in a representative way of his own body, which is mere hours away from being beaten, whipped, spat upon, and nailed to the cross. And by giving the bread to his disciples as his body, he's saying, in some way... This terrifying death is being offered to you. I am going to do this for your benefit. I'm giving myself, my very body, as a gift for you. And then he takes the cup. There were four cups that were eaten, that were drunk during the Passover meal. And this almost certainly was the third cup after the meal proper. So Jesus would have broken the bread. They would have eaten the meal, and then Jesus would have taken the cup, which was known to the Jews as the cup of blessing. And these four cups had four promises associated with them from Exodus chapter 6. Each cup had its own blessing, its own promise. The promise associated with the third cup from Exodus 6 is this. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. This is my blood. And the blood symbolizes, of course, life. The life is in its blood. That's the fundamental Old Testament principle. And when the blood is poured out, it means death. Life offered up. The victim offering up its life. You notice in here, Jesus speaks separately of his body and his blood. Because when your body and your blood are separated, you are dead. This is about death. And Jesus is saying, this blood that I'm going to pour out for you, 
that in fact I already see as poured out for you is the new covenant, is a covenant in my blood. A covenant is one of those great Old Testament words that speaks of two parties binding themselves permanently together with solemn oaths. And these covenants between God and his people in the Old Testament were always sealed with blood. There was always a sacrifice sealing the covenant, stamping it and guaranteeing it. And the old covenant that God had made with Moses and God's people was sealed with the blood of animals. But as Hebrews tells us, the blood of animals can never really take away sin. It's just the blood of an animal. But here Jesus is going to launch this new covenant, and he's going to seal it with something far more permanent than the blood of bulls and goats, his very own blood, the blood of the Son of God, which completely covers all of our sins. And therefore, this new covenant is unbreakable. God will not break this covenant, and we ourselves will not break this covenant because, according to Jeremiah 31, God is going to put a new spirit within us, the promise of Pentecost, and write the law of God upon our hearts. So we're now in this new arrangement with God. We don't start with a blank slate every Sunday or every morning when you pray. You have an arrangement with God that he has set up. God is no longer free to forgive or not to forgive because he has sworn a solemn oath and he has promised in Christ Jesus, I will be your God and you will be my people. And therefore, when we go to God with our sins, we can say, God, you promise. First John, you are faithful and just to forgive my sins. You no longer have a choice whether or not you're going to forgive my sins because I belong to Jesus. And so we don't have to come to God with nervousness and trepidation. Will he or won't he accept me this time? Oh dear, I've sinned again. I've fallen short again. How is God going to react? We know how God is going to react with mercy. There's this great Old Testament word, hesed, which means often translated steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And it could also be translated as covenant loyalty. God is loyal to us. He has sworn oaths to us. Each person who believes in Jesus has been sealed with the blood of Christ. And God cannot and he will not give you up. You are permanently bonded to him through Christ. And this is how Jesus sets up the new covenant, by pouring out his blood. In the Old Testament, when an animal was sacrificed, its throat was cut and its blood poured out of its neck into a basin. And then the priest would literally pour that blood all over the altar. And on special occasions, even sprinkle that blood over the people to show that their sins had been cleansed and offering of atonement had been given. Jesus' blood is poured out for many. Notice that little word for. Jesus' blood is not poured out accidentally as some kind of senseless tragedy. It's poured out deliberately and purposefully, and it has people in mind. It's for them in their place, just like that lamb's blood smeared on the doorframe so that when the angel flew over, it would see the blood and pass by. 
And the same for all of us who have trusted Jesus. His blood is smeared over the door frames of our houses so that God's wrath no longer threatens us. In the Exodus account, the original one, God's mighty act of judgment was killing the firstborn of the Egyptians. Here, in God's new Exodus, he's killing a firstborn, his own firstborn. God offers up his own son on behalf of sinful people like us people who know or ought to know that we have no claim on God, that we are dirty, we are shameful, we are unclean, and nevertheless, God says, here is my son as my gift to you. And he is willingly offering himself for sinners like you and me. And this blood is poured out for many, for many, 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 not just the eleven at the Last Supper, or should we say the First Supper, for everyone who has gathered in every time and in every place around the Lord's table, his blood is poured out for us. Not just a little trickle of people, but a mighty host from every tribe, tongue, tongue, language, and nation coming to faith in Jesus. Everyone who lays their hands on this sacrifice, Jesus on the cross, will be saved and have a new relationship of peace with God, poured out for many. Jesus is the heart of God's feast. And his sacrifice, his death, is at the center of everything. You notice as you read Mark's gospel, we have all these awesome stories about healings and miracles and deliverances, but now time is slowing down, and we're almost going into slow motion as we get into these last hours of Jesus' life. And the whole focus of Mark's gospel is now on Jesus, who is about to die on the cross. The death of Christ is the central fact of Christianity. Tear out the cross, and we have nothing left to preach to you. There is no gospel, there is no hope, and there is no message. If all we have are some miracles and teachings, we no longer really have anything that can truly deal with our greatest problem. But there is a cross, and there is a man who stands crucified and risen for us, and that is at the center of everything. So this is the reason we celebrate the Lord's Supper so often, because again and again and again, we need to remind ourselves what is at the heart of of Christianity, and who is at the heart of God's feast? Christ crucified for our sins. And as Christians, we get so distracted by so many things, so many good things. I'm not talking about sins. I'm talking about good, biblical things. But they are peripheral things, and we must never forget what is at the center of our faith, the body and blood of Christ given for us. It would be sad if that was so sweet to us when we came to faith in Christ for the first time. But as we grew and matured matured, and went on in years that we became bored with what Christ had done for us and became obsessed and interested in many, many other activities and projects and ideas. This 
is the center. And it's going to be the center of the feast forever and ever. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will be singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And so the Lord's Supper, this Holy Communion, it's not really about bread and wine. It's not about a whole bunch of other things. It's about Christ himself. Do you know that I don't believe in grace? I do not believe in grace. Oh, everyone kind of woke up for a second there. The pastoral search committee is having some regrets now. I do not believe in grace. But I do believe in Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because Christ is the grace of God. I do not believe in salvation. I do not believe in the cross. I do not believe in a hundred other things. I believe in Christ. I believe in Christ the Savior. I believe in Christ crucified, risen, and ascended for me. And our great danger is that we start getting consumed with theological abstractions instead of Jesus Christ himself. And the whole point of the Lord's Supper, of this sacrament, is that we encounter Christ himself as we eat and drink. Because what is offered to us in this bread and this, and this cup, these humble, very humble ordinances, is Jesus himself. That is who we want to meet. And so there's nothing, I have to tell you, there's nothing magical about this juice and this bread. It is something that is a means of grace that brings us closer to Jesus, and that's who we want. And it's only when we eat this bread and drink from this cup in faith that the Holy Spirit draws us closer and closer to Christ. We do not want the sacrament to be something that stands in the place of Jesus as some kind of new sacrifice. It's something that points us to Jesus and is a channel through which Jesus comes and gives himself to us. And so what we're really eating and drinking is Christ himself, by faith, by the Holy Spirit. We are opening our mouths and, as it were, ingesting Christ into us. As we grow and live our lives, we are continually dying, aren't we? And our dead tissues need to be renewed. And so we eat food and it becomes life for us and strength for us. And somehow it becomes part of our very self. This entire body here is made of food that's been transformed into flesh and blood. And that's what it's like when we feed on Christ by faith. He becomes part of us. He is dwelling within us by his spirit. And we are drawing our very life from him, just like the vine draws sap from the root. So Jesus is the host of God's feast. He's the heart of God's feast And thirdly and finally, Jesus is the hope of God's feast. There were four cups traditionally in Passover. Jesus drinks the third cup, but he abstains from the fourth cup. He says, truly I tell you, this is verse 25, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is a somber last meal. There is an atmosphere of dread and gloom about it. There is a disciple who's betraying Jesus. And in a mere matter of hours, Jesus is going to be arrested and sent to his death. But it's not a hopeless meal. It is not a despairing meal because even as Jesus is preparing for his death, 
he knows that this death is not the end of the story. The Son of Man must go as it is written about him. And there is more written about Jesus than just the cross. The cross is not going to be Jesus' defeat. Much as the religious leaders might think so, much as Judas might think so, much as even Peter and John and the other disciples might think so, the cross is going to be Jesus' climactic victory over sin and Satan and death itself. And it's going to set off a long chain reaction, a chain reaction that is still going on that is going to culminate in the victory feast in the house of Zion. And we are still feeling the effects of the cross. Jesus is looking forward to this messianic banquet. Who likes a banquet? A huge feast. That is what we're looking forward to. Today, I'm afraid you're only going to get a little morsel of bread and a little sip of juice. God has something much better planned for us. I promise you. There is a huge feast that is being promised. If you turn to the book of Isaiah, for example, let's go Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 25. This feast that had long been promised. Isaiah 25, uh, let's say verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And of course, you know, that prophecy gets picked up in the book of Revelation when Christ returns and the new Jerusalem is lowered down from heaven. There is a heavenly feast and it has not yet begun. The table is being set, the forks and knives are being laid out, things are happening in the kitchen, but the feast has not yet begun. Christ is deferring the great banquet. And he promises, no wine will pass my lips while I am busy building guarding and guiding my church. No feasting for Jesus until the very last of the invited guests sits down at his table, safely home. And there are many, many, many seats at Christ's table that have not yet been filled. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. And it's our joy as Christ's disciples, his apostles, his missionaries to go into all the world and invite people to compel them to come into the feast. Jesus offers the feast of God's redemption to every disciple, to every person on this earth. He is the host of God's feast. He is the heart of God's feast. And he is the hope of God's feast. This is not really the Last Supper. There is a supper after that the true Last Supper, and it will never end. There's a day coming, and God, may it come quickly when we will at last sit down together with brothers and sisters we have never met from all times and all places. We will sit down at the table, the wedding supper of the Lamb, and eat and drink with Jesus face to face. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's bow our heads 
and pray in preparation for partaking of Holy Communion. Holy God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, with joy we praise you, we give thanks to your name. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.